encourage you to have one because we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13 today. So if you turn to Hebrews 13, we're in the final chapter of this wonderful uh, book. And uh, what an amazing final chapter it is. <clears throat> we have been soaring in the high theological clouds of Hebrews uh, for, for many many, many months now, over a year we've been in this book, and, and chapter 13 is, is sort of the descent part, if you've been on a flight before. We're descending out of the clouds, and we're coming in for a landing, and so he's addressing all of these small areas of just practical ways to live as believers. How do you take these things and apply them to your lives? And, um, and when you look at chapter 13, in relation to where we just come from, it's almost a, a jarring transition. Because we've, uh, we've just come out of the, the final warning. Remember, there's five warnings in the book of Hebrews. We've come out of the final warning, and it was a powerful and sobering, sobering warning. We, we went back into the Old Testament, and we pictured when God uh, came upon Mount Sinai and the children of Israel. They were all at the foot of that mountain, and it was such a frightening picture. God was on that mountain, and there was blackness and darkness and tempest. That's how it was described, and it burned with fire. And so frightening was it that the people begged that the word would not be spoken anymore. What word was that? Well, God's word was coming out of the mountain. And instead, they said, Moses, you speak to God, and we'll just stay back here. You just come and tell us what God said, because that is a scary picture. And the picture was God was unapproachable. It was a picture of you cannot approach God because we're sinful human beings. But today, today we don't come to that mountain. Today, people don't come to this scary picture of God on this mountain burning with fire. Instead, we're told that we come to God on Mount Zion, and he is an approachable God, that he desires us to come to him. And so the warning there was this. It was, don't refuse God, because those that refuse him will experience the fear of God that Israel experienced when they approached God when he was on Mount Sinai. He caused that mountain to shake, and one day he's going to shake the heavens and the earth, and everything will be consumed, ending with this terrible phrase in verse 29 of chapter 12, for our God is a consuming fire. And then it goes right into 13 with let brotherly love continue. So it's, just, it's almost this jarring transition. Why does it come to us like this? Was the writer not thinking about transitions? Why, why do we have that? Well, much of the New Testament, especially epistles when you read those, are structured the same way. You have all this theology, theological instruction, followed by practical application. Uh, in fact, the focus has been, if you think about it, on our vertical relationship. Each of us must realize that we have some kind of vertical relationship to God, whether you realize it or not. One is, uh, God accepts me and I can approach him. And one is, well, that other picture. We can't approach him because our sins have not been forgiven. Where are you in that vertical relationship? And the vertical relationship is also showing us what kind of love we're to have for God. What are the practical, then, implications of the theological truths that we have been learning? We've been shown how to love Him. I mean, knowing that Jesus is better, that's been the theme of the whole book, that's, that's, that's great, but how does it affect our lives today? What do you take and what do you do with that? 
We've got to move at some point from the vertical to the horizontal, don't we? You go from this to, okay, now that this is right, how does it affect all of my horizontal relationships? Those relationships with people here. That's what the writer is doing. He is taking us rather quickly from the vertical relationship to the horizontal. Our God is a consuming fire. Don't refuse him, but let brotherly love continue. Do you see that? And, you know, one of the great examples of this is the Ten Commandments. Most people know, if you know anything about the Bible, you know there's Ten Commandments in the Bible. Well, the Ten Commandments are structured the same way. They follow the same pattern. Those first four uh, center on our vertical relationship with God. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any carved images. Don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. And then he moves right away to the horizontal, doesn't he? Don't steal, don't kill, don't lie. All of these things. So that's what's happening here. Hebrews is doing the same thing. Love for God, because he is a consuming fire, is important. But we also must love the brethren as well. And why is that important? Why isn't it just enough just to believe the stuff? Wouldn't that be nice? Just I believe it, and just kind of just put it away. Because the church of Jesus Christ remains on earth. We are here still. So the question is why? Why are we still here? We have to be witnesses to the truth of the doctrines that we preach. And so we're surrounded by a godless society. They want to see if we really live as if we believe, practice what we preach. In other words, you could say our conduct must match our creed or our duty must match our doctrine. A few weeks ago in our men's Bible study, Wearsby uh, had it another way. Our word must match our work. Titus chapter 2, verses 7 to 8 says this, In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. See, if we can live in a way that's above reproach, that portrays the true gospel to this unbelieving world, then perhaps people will trust in Jesus for salvation, which will bring him glory, and that's why we're here. We're here to glorify God. We're here to remember that one day we'll enjoy him forever. And in Matthew 5, 16, we're told, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so what follows in chapter 13 are really essential ethics of practical Christian living. Ethics means a moral code. That's what ethics are. It has to do with the standards of conduct. And these standards originate from doctrinal truths that are found in God's word. That's why there's such a thing as Christian ethics. They come from God's word. It has nothing to do with how you feel. It has nothing to do with what you desire. That's the world telling you those things, but that's not where ethics come from. Our standards for living as Christians in this world must come from doctrine, and not just doctrine, but right doctrine, sound doctrine, true doctrine. There are so-called Christians today who have a standard of ethics built on wrong doctrine. They're trying to throw out doctrine while at the same time maintaining Christian ethics. That can't be done. Because what happens is you just threw out the standard. There is no standard. And we cannot go by what my standard is or your standard is. 
Um, they're going to be different, they're going to be contradictory, and they're going to be false. The standard must remain, and it is the foundation of God's Word that informs and guides our behavior. So, understanding that this passage, then, is examining these essential ethics of practical Christian living, we're going to look at one particular area, and it is this. It's practical expressions of love. Practical expressions of love. So let me read the passage here. We're just looking at the first three verses, and then we'll dig into it. Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 3. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Just a short few verses there, but let's see what they um, tell us about um, these, these ethics that we live by. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word today, and we pray that you would guide us into the, the truths that are, that are here. Lord, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where everything we've been studying now has a practical application. How do we live these things out? So I pray that your spirit would uh, illuminate these truths to our hearts. Lord, would you open up our hearts for what you want to teach us, that we might live in a way that brings you more glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, just three areas of practical expressions of love that are seen here. And the first is this. There's a, there should be a continual love for the brothers. A continual love for the brothers. It says, let brotherly love continue. Now, when I say brothers, just know, ladies, I include sisters in that as well. Okay? Uh, that is the idea. But this is the, the primary ethical standard for a Christian. That shouldn't be any surprise to any Christian that love is the, the ultimate standard. The love that is being exhorted here is brotherly love, very clearly. And brotherly love in the Greek is Philadelphia. Even if you're not living in the States, you should know that Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love. Right, James? Eagles fan over there. And Philadelphia is composed of two Greek root words, phileo, which is tender affection, but also adelphos, which is brother or kinsman, and it literally means from the same womb, okay? And so it is a familial love. It is one that is a distinctly Christian love. Notice that what it says, that we are to let brotherly love continue. We're not told to uh, make it happen. We're not told to obtain it. We're told that love is not something that we have to generate or to create. We simply must let it continue. That's interesting. What is the reason for that? Well, the reason is it's already been generated within us. This is a letter to a church. This is a letter to believers. And he's speaking about that kind of love between believers, a familial love. And he says, you already have a love for one another. What you need to do is to let it continue. It's already been generated within us. That love has come into our hearts at the moment of salvation. I touched on this a little bit last week. In Romans 5, verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts 
by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So love here is a byproduct of salvation. And consequently, it's proof then that we are indeed saved. It offers assurance of salvation. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience. It's it's right there at the top. So just as love is a proof of our salvation, failure to love or absence of love is evidence that we are not saved. Now, that is a hard statement to make. That's not my own words. That's the words of the Bible. 1 John 3, 14 makes that statement. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now, that is a frightening statement. We know we have assurance of salvation. We know that we've actually passed from that place of death under God's wrath to a place of life because of this love that should be naturally coming out. But if we don't love, he says, you don't know that that's happened. There there is no guarantee. Not only does love give us then assurance of salvation, but it testifies to the world that we do belong to him. Jesus had said that, didn't he? By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So clearly, love is an important thing. It's extremely important. The problem is not that we do not have love. We have it. It's generated within believers. So you might say, well, why don't we see love in churches sometimes? Why don't we see love? Now, I would say here, the number one comment I get from people who do come, and I'm just going to brag on you a little bit, and they come back, is that your church is so loving. Your church is people just coming up, and they were just loving on me. That is a great thing. I love to hear that. That is how churches should be. But you know what? You don't walk into every church and feel so very loved. So what is the problem? If love is in them, then why does it not, why is it not shown? Well, the problem is that we pollute it. The problem is we pervert it. We, we stifle it. The love is there. So how do we pollute these things or pervert it? How do we stifle it? I'm going to give you a couple of things. First is by using the wrong standard. I already mentioned that earlier. You're not even building or showing that love off the standard of Scripture. In 1 Peter 1.22, he says this, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now look at that. That's very clear. You have purified your souls in what? Obeying the truth through the Spirit. That's sincere love, a pure heart. We only have a pure heart that is generated by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. When we use the wrong standard, we have no standard, we can't really be confident that we're really loving people. How do we purify our souls? In fact, according to that verse, it says, in obeying the truth. That's obedience to God's Word. But Christians that don't hold the Word of God in high regard or who ignore it, Altogether, they're not obeying the truth, and therefore they are rejecting the standard, the truth concerning ethics. And people love to talk about love today, definitions of love. That's highly touted. I was going through Butte Park, and it was written on the site, love is love. Boy, what a profound statement. Love is love. Wow. Let me just chew on that one for a moment. Listen, I could say 
that I'm doing something in the name of love. And the world would say, oh, but it's love. And so we should let love continue. My love could be expressed this way. And I used this, I think, in the men's uh, meeting a couple weeks ago. I could say I have a new and intense love for a woman in this room who isn't my wife. But it's love. And we should come around love, but it's a real love. And you should go, oh, yeah, but it's, it's love. Like he didn't know love, but now he really has found love. Now, two problems right there. One would be the husband of that woman in this room. And the other would be my wife would have some words to say about that. Where, where is the standard? There, if there's no standard, then they're like, well, he, uh, is it right? Is it wrong? Well, it's love. Do you see what I'm saying? If we just say it's about love, we're all over the place. We have no standard. We have nothing to place our feet on. That is clearly wrong. <laughs> My love as a married man should be solely directed to two people. Love for my wife and love for Jesus Christ. We have to have a standard. Love is polluted, you see. We pervert it or we withhold it from people because we use the wrong standard. It's perverted a lot of times by sin. It's polluted by sin. In Matthew 24, 12, it says this, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will, will grow cold. Lawlessness is sin. So when, when, when the world is just more and more polluted with sin, it begins to taint love. And that's what we see today. It's just a, it's a lawless world, and so the love of many has grown cold. There's just not a real understanding of what love is. And so no one really knows what love is, and no one's feeling love. Love in this world is going to decrease because sin is increasing. And the chief sin of man is pride, which is interesting because our, our, our society praises pride. Even the word, we use it. Make no mistake, self-love, self-glory, pride are the great enemies of God. Since God is love, they are therefore the enemies of love. Love is not found in self-love, self-glory, and pride. They are like the two uh, heads of that leech described in Proverbs thirty fifteen. It's a very graphic proverb if you think about it. The leech has two daughters, Give and give. That's a leech. Not because the leech is giving. What's a leech doing? Taking. But it's saying, give me, give me, give me. And that kind of perversion of uh, what love should be exists in the church too. We have to be so careful to guard that. The leech is only concerned for itself. So spiritually, it speaks of one who is full of self-love and pride. People who are never satisfied. They never get enough from others. Uh, and rather than give to others, they only continue to demand more. Self-love, it perverts biblical love. Self-love has to die if brotherly love is to have any hope of continuing. And that's why it's no surprise to see that one of the qualifications for uh, an elder in the church is that they not be self-willed. Because self can't be present. It's not about self. A leader in the church of Jesus Christ cannot be self-willed because Jesus, the great head of the church, he wasn't either. And in Matthew chapter 20, verses 27 to 28, Jesus said these words, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
if anyone could have demanded, demanded to be worshipped and to be served, it would have been Jesus, but he didn't live that way. He served. And so we're to let brotherly love continue. It's in you. Sin perverts it. Sin pollutes it. Our world perverts it. Our sinful hearts stifle it. We have to let it continue. How do we do that? Three things I want to give you on that. Number one, it begins with this, express it. <laughs> express it. It's not doing any good if God's love has been poured into your hearts and that's as far as it goes. You've got to express that love. And, you know, that might seem more difficult in more reserved cultures. <laughs> I'm not saying everyone in this room. But generally, <laughs> British cultures might be a little more reserved. We have to come out of that and say, I've got to express that express brotherly love. Romans 12, 10 says this, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Now I'll say again, I think we have a very affectionate church. We do. And I love that about our church. Kindly affectionate is, it's, it's a tender love which is a characteristic of a family. It's that very special, tender love that you should have in your home. Affection between parents and children, between husbands and wives, that's kindly affectionate love. In honor, giving preference to one another is to have a genuine admiration for them, a, ge a genuine appreciation for them. What if, what if I don't genuinely admire someone? What if I don't generally want to appreciate them in my heart? What do you do? Well, you're probably thinking too highly of yourself. That's it. What is it about you that sets you above others to be especially admired or appreciated? You need to measure yourself up against Jesus Christ. He is the standard. To express love genuinely, you must give preference to one another. We must care for others more then we care for ourselves. I'm going back to that leech again. A lot of times people think the church is just here to serve them. Give me, give me, I want, I want, I need, I need. But that is not why the, the church is here. The Bible says that pastors and evangelists and teachers have been given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that you would be equipped to, to live this way, to do things this way. Was care for others more than we care for ourselves. And that leads to the next method, I think, the, by which we can let brotherly love continue. Not only should we express it, nurture it. We should nurture it. We nurture brotherly love when we have a, a proper perspective of ourselves first. And that's going to require humility. We nurture brotherly love through humility, giving preference to one another. In Philippians 2, Verses 3 to 4, it says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Lovelessness in a church is wiped away by humility. It just doesn't exist. When humility is present, love abounds. Pride, self-love in a church, they can't exist when humility is present. They're the enemies of love. Humility grows out of a correct view of ourselves. In other words, we need to have the correct spiritual 
knowledge. You cannot be a truly humble person and not know Jesus. Jesus is the gold standard of humility, isn't he? His life, his beginning to end is marked by humility. In fact, we just looked at Philippians 2. If you'd like to turn, uh, left-hand turn to Philippians, I just want to show you the verses that follow really briefly. Philippians 2, but what it goes on to say about Jesus in verses 5 to to 8. So not only are we to live in a way where we don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but we esteem others uh, better than ourselves, but he tells us, beginning in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, to have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It's really hard to imagine the humility that's pictured there because it pictures Christ before his incarnation in, in heaven in glory, not, not amongst us where all this sin and, and filth is, there, separated from it. But he, you know, he left that. He left that place, and it says he humbled himself, became like one of us. I mean, what humility. And he did that, why? For you, for me, for people who reject him even today, all the way to the point where he died a death, a humiliating death on the cross you, you can't find a better example of humility in history. Jesus is the gold standard. So if he did that to serve you and me, the least Christians should do is to serve others. If we truly begin to nurture brotherly love through humility, then it's going to increase, and that's the third method, to increase it. Can your love for others increase? It can. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Verses 9 to 10, Paul addresses this. He says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. He says about brotherly love, I don't need to instruct you how to do that. Why? Because you're taught by God. Again, it's been poured out into our hearts. We should know how to love because of what Christ has done for us. That, that should just be a given. Sadly, we do have to teach on how to love because we're sinful. But not only were, were they loving, though, he says, I want you to increase it more and more. How do we increase our love if it's God who puts the love in our hearts and teaches us how to love? How do we increase that? Well, it's true. God has already given us everything we need. That is true. He's given us the love. There are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. That's how Paul describes them. But we already have the blessings. We already have them. We just need to, to, to use them. That, that's it. We just need to use them. Let me take you to 2 Peter to show you. 2 Peter, just go back to the right, um, and then you're going to pass Hebrews, and you're going to see James, 1 Peter, and then 2 Peter. 2 Peter, ver, um, Chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, 2 Peter 1, 3, 
as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So all things, all things that pertain to life, to godliness, you already have those things. They have already been given to us. We don't need to seek further spiritual blessings. We don't need to go, oh, God, I just hope that you would just give me more spiritual blessings. You have them all. They've already been given to you. But when we use them, they increase. The problem is, is we don't use them. And so 2 Peter goes on. He goes on to kind of instruct us how that looks. Look at verse 5. But also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, here it is, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? It's, it's using those things. Yes, it's just not enough to say, I have faith. He says, well, great. Add to your faith virtue. And add to that knowledge. And just keep increasing these things. And when you do, and these things abound more and more, what happens? You look back and you see, wow, there is just a fruit. There's just all this fruit around me. You know how many Christians I have met that have come and sat down to talk about their unfruitful, barren lives. They haven't said it in that way. I just listened to how they described it and I said, hmm, would you say it this way? Would you say that your life as a Christian seems unfruitful or barren? Oh, that's exactly how I would say it. Oh yeah, well, let's look at a passage. And I've taken the second Peter. It's like, is this you? Yeah, that is me. Well, maybe because you're not using the blessings you've already been given. You're not adding to these things. And you know the sad truth? If you look at the very next verse, it says in verse 9, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. You actually get to a point as a Christian where you start doubting if you were even saved. And so when people go, how do I know if I'm saved? How do you know? There has to be fruit. But a lot of times it's you not producing the fruit because you're just not using the things that God has already given you. Again, we go back to stifling it. I'm just going to stifle it. I've just got my faith and it's enough and, and that's it. I'm going I'm to sit in my corner and, and do nothing. No, people need you and you need them. That is the church. And so don't be a, an unfruitful, barren Christian. We've got to nurture these things and allow them to increase by using them. And in fact, it says to add to. Add is to give lavishly and generously. Add these things to your faith. God gives us the faith and everything else we need for godliness, but we add to faith when we diligently devote ourselves to righteousness. We've got a desire to see those things in our lives increase. That's what takes diligence. At the beginning, he says, it takes diligence. You got to want it. You got to work for it. It takes devotion. It takes desire, which is probably the ultimate reason many people don't pursue it. It's just not that important. 
And when those things, though, are active in your life, not only will brotherly love increase, but so will everything else. And it's an amazing thing. So that's going back to Hebrews 13. That's just the first point, to let brotherly love continue. We're to have a continual love for the brothers. It never ceases. It continues. The second thing is we're to have a congenial love for strangers. Look at verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels, a congenial love for strangers. Well, to entertain strangers, that phrase is one word in the Greek. It's philoxenia, and it means a stranger lover, stranger lover, hospitable. This is love that manifests itself by showing love to others, whether they're in the body of Christ or outside the body of Christ. Just people we maybe don't know that well. To love a stranger in in those times particularly included putting them up for the night, having them come into your dwelling during their travels and while they were there caring for their needs. Our first responsibility in caring for strangers must always be to our brothers in Christ first. When given the opportunity, it's to the household of faith first. We want to show that kind of love to all, but we must show it to the people in the body of Christ. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, we're told this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. We do good to everyone, but we definitely better be showing love to those in the household of faith. I had a wonderful opportunity this week. Two ladies, they might be even watching right now, watch us online. I think I met them once, um, and uh, one of them was desperately in need of prayer. In fact, we prayed uh, for you, Anne, this morning in the prayer meeting, and just reached out, said, ah, we don't come, we just watch online, but really need prayer. We trust the ministry of Calvary Chapel Cardiff. Just ask if you would come. I don't know them like I know you, but they're sisters in Christ. And so, of course, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some time to go love others. That's, that's congenial love for, I could say, for strangers in that way. They're sisters in the body of Christ, strangers no more. Since we're all of the same family, the family of God, we must make sure that we take care of the needs of the family. You guys remember when we had... Uh, Brent and Diana over at the hospital, right? We, none of us knew them from Adam, but they came over. They had a very sick child, and we just we, we, we sought to love them, met their needs, provided meals. That's, that's a stranger lover within the body of Christ. But it doesn't just stop there. It's also outside the body of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, we're told, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. And all includes, well, even our enemies, doesn't it? Because Jesus said that, didn't he? Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's Jesus' words. Being a, a stranger lover was a very important part of life in those days. In fact, it was needed. You couldn't trust the, the ends. You, you had to rely on the hospitality of strangers, which explains why the command to be hospitable is so often repeated through Scripture. 
It may, not, it may kind of seem a little bit more foreign today, but it certainly wasn't foreign to the readers of the Bible in those times. In 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Oh, there's, there's that part. <laughs> we, we could be hospitable, but we might moan about it all the time, leading up to it and going away. I could have you know, joyfully gone out to them and met them, and, or I could have grumbling gone out to meet with them, right? We're to do it without grumbling. Romans 12, 13, to be distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. In fact, that's a great description of hospitality, meeting the needs, meeting the needs of the saints. Once again, what's interesting is that you cannot even serve in the church as an elder, as a leader, unless you're hospitable. That's one of the, the biblical requirements. Just read about it in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Also, interestingly, a widow... A widow in this time was not to be supported by the church unless they had shown hospitality. Because Paul describes a widow who is really a widow, and what he means by that is one who does not have literally anyone on earth, no family to take care of her at all. Just So the church then took the responsibility. But even then, there was, there was sort of a standard there. Look what it says in 1 Timothy 5, 9 to 10. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. So that's uh, the number of those that are supported by the church. And not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Wow. That's how important hospitality was. You got to make sure even these people who are wanting to be served by the church have served the church, and they've done it diligently. So important is it to the author that the church faithfully care for the needs of the body of Christ that he tantalizes them with a very interesting prospect. Did you did you notice it there? Go back to verse two. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Yes. Now, this is not the motivation, folks. That's not what he's doing. Hey, listen, okay, make sure you go entertain people who, you know, because you never know. You might just get an angel. That's not the motivation. The point is, is that by entertaining strangers, you just never know how far-reaching of an effect that will have. You have no clue. To you, it just might have seemed like it's just a simple little thing. You have no idea the, the implications of your actions. You might remember Abraham, he refused to let three strangers pass him by. You remember that? I mean, he was employing them. No, come here. Come, don't pass by my sight. Let me, let me bring you some water. Let me make, a, make some food for you. Give a morsel of bread. He wouldn't let them go by. He had no idea at the time that he was going to be serving two angels and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what he did. My father, and I might have told this story before, still swears today that we had an opportunity to entertain an angel because we lived in a remote rural area of Oregon. Salem, Oregon is the um, capital, and we worked there and went to school there, but we lived in an outskirts in a town called Silverton. There was a cornfield opposite us, a wheat field next to us, and we lived on a hazelnut tree orchard. I mean, it was farmland, and there was just nothing for, for miles. And yet, this, this, this migrant worker comes walking up and knocking on our door. Where he came from, we don't know. 
asking for work in exchange for food and a bed. And my, my dad um, didn't accommodate. And so we went to church that Sunday, and we had service, and we came out, and, and, and this is in town, so this is 20 miles away. There was this same guy in the parking lot of the church out of the entire capital city of Oregon. And, um, and he was going around to Christians pretty much asking the same thing. And uh, my dad noticed him, and we began to drive away, and he goes, this is the second opportunity I've had for that same guy. And he swung around. I'll never forget it because he just did a U-turn in the middle of the road. We're like, what's happening? And he zoomed back to the church, and we got to the parking lot, and he had disappeared. There was just no trace of him, and he hit his dashboard. I knew it. What? What? What was he? I'm pretty sure that was an angel. Now, as a kid, listening to my dad say things like that, you know, I thought, well, let's get out of here because that's scary. What are you talking about? An angel. He had obviously read Hebrews 13. He knew that there are opportunities sometimes to entertain angels if we would just simply open up our doors. That's not the point. The point is to be a hospital because you just never know. You never know what God is trying to teach us through that experience. So we should have a congenial love for strangers. And finally, third, a third aspect of love, compassionate love for the hurting. Look at three. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. This is a very simple principle here. We're to be compassionate, to be to sympathetic to those who are in need, obviously. Um, I think you just imagine if you were imprisoned, you were locked away from family, what would be the greatest thing that you would, you would want? You'd want a visit. If you had no food and you were hungry, what would be the greatest thing that you could really use? A meal. It's just, it's the golden rule, isn't it? Jesus talked about that. Whatever you want men to do to you, do for them. That's the law and the prophets. So if you... Put yourself in their position. Oh, if I were there, I'd really want to visit. Okay, I should go visit them. Jesus illustrated this when he spoke about the sheep and the goats. And that's in the end times. Jesus is going to separate humanity into two groups, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And he welcomes all of the sheep into his kingdom, into the kingdom of God. He welcomes them. And he welcomes them in for what they did for other believers in their lifetime. At least that's what he says. And he says, come on into the kingdom because I was hungry and you, you fed me. I was thirsty, you, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I, I was naked and you, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And they're confused, obviously, as you would be. And they say to Jesus, well, Jesus, when did we see you in this state? When did we see you naked and give you clothes? When did we come and visit you in prison? I don't remember seeing Jesus in prison. And Jesus' answer is very clear in Matthew 25, 40. He says this, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say it to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. When part of the body is in need, we must feel the need as if it's our own body because we're in the body of Christ. That's what Jesus was saying. You should love your brothers and sisters in Christ and meet their needs. Paul, that's why when Paul was in prison, he makes a note of that to the people he's writing to. Paul says, remember my chains. Why does he want them to remember his chains? It'd be really great to have a visit from one of you because I'm in chains. Real compassion for the mistreated, the imprisoned, can be shown by several 
things, I just want to give a couple of points. One is just being available, isn't it? Sometimes it's just being available. Being available to listen to them in a hard time, to sit with them in, in loneliness, to walk through difficulty with them, just being available. Other times it may require that we give directly to them, whatever their need is, giving directly, if, if it's food or financially, whatever it is. Paul thanked the Philippians because they gave to him financially when he was in need in Philippians 4, 14 to 16. He said, nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. You know, that's the ministry of our helping hands ministry here in church. We have a helping hands ministry for that very purpose. It's to meet the needs of the body, giving directly to whatever that might be. When, when, when Roxy was, was, you know, had her baby, let's give her meals. When, when people are in need of, of help at the home or whatever it might be, we provide those things. That's part of bearing one another's burdens in Galatians 6.2. We fulfill the law of Christ when we bear burdens. So not just being available, sometimes we give directly, but we can also pray continually. We're told to pray without ceasing. We need to be like Epaphras. He was always laboring fervently in prayers, Paul said. He was a prayer warrior. That church here in Hebrews exhibited um, these kinds of things. If you look back to Hebrews 10, just really briefly, uh, Hebrews 10, 32 to 34, these things are recalled. Hebrews 10, 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. That was the testimony of the church the Hebrew church there. We have an enduring possession for ourselves as well, don't we? We have an enduring possession. In Mount Zion, we come to the city of the living God, whose uh, right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Why do we hang on to the little bits that we have here when there's others in need? No, we are to have a brotherly love for our church, brothers and sisters, and that should be a continual love, a giving love, a sacrificial love. We should be having a congenial love for, for strangers, those outside of this local body, but the greater body of Christ and the world. And we should have a compassionate love for those that are hurting. When we hear of people in great need, we should do whatever we can to meet those needs. Here we find the beginning Practical expressions of love that are built on the standard of God's word, not on the standard of the world's word. That's where love begins. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today, for the instruction, the practical instruction that we find here regarding love, how we are to, to truly love others. I pray that you would help us all by the power of your Holy Spirit which is in us, to love in the way that you've called us to love. The love, love has already been poured into our hearts. It's already there. We simply need to express it, to nurture it, to allow it to increase in our lives. Lord, we pray that this would be a church that would be known by its love, by the kindly, affectionate manner that we have with 
one another. A love that we have for even people outside of this fellowship and for those that are hurting and in need. We, uh, Lord, pray that you would just continue to open up our hearts to all that you have for us in the rest of this chapter and the continuing weeks ahead. Lord, that we would put to, put to use all the knowledge that we've been storing up over the last uh, 12 chapters of learning Hebrews, Lord, to put these things into practice that we might glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.